Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We'll be in Hebrews 11 today. Uh, we're going to try to do the whole chapter if, if, uh, if we can get through the whole chapter. Um, we have a definition in verse 1. I'm just going to read verse 1. We'll end with verse 1. The whole chapter is about verse 1. Uh, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. So that's, we're kicking off of an entire chapter about what faith is. And I got to tell you, I, I went decades in my faith thinking I knew what faith was. And then I went to college and took entire courses on Kierkegaard. And then I thought Kierkegaard knew what faith was. And then I read the Bible. And they're not the same thing. They're very different ideas. And I want to try to at least leave here today understanding what the writers of Hebrew thought faith was more than what's already in our heads and more than what Kierkegaard says. So if you don't know Kierkegaard, he's, he was a, a philosopher of the late 1800s, early 1900s, somewhere in there. And he argued that you have to take a leap of faith. So it, it became part of Christian vernacular that we take a leap of faith. That at the end of the day, faith and reason aren't necessarily together with each other. And that you got to just set your reason to the side and accept the things you cannot see on a leap of faith, that, that, that you can get most of the way there through reason, but you have to ultimately take an illogical step to get to Christianity. I, I got to tell you, I don't think that's what the writer of Hebrews said. I just think that that's an added-on thing that came 1,800 years after the Christian faith. And since Kierkegaard expounded his wisdom, we have not seen a growth in the Christian faith uh, in the Western world. We have definitely seen it in other parts of the world, but not in the Western world. So here's the context. Over the last 10 chapters, we've moved through a rationale moving Jewish people from synagogues to an epi-synagogue, a synagogue that's on top of the synagogue of Christ, to go from an old covenant to a new covenant, to go from an old high priest to Jesus Christ as high priest. And the book of Hebrews is encouraging Jewish people to leave their old lives behind to leave them in the dust and to move on with Christianity and to move forward. Despite what the entire culture of the Middle East was saying, they were encouraging them, even if you're being persecuted, even if they're taking things out of your home and confiscating your goods, that we, they would do it with joy because that's, the, that's part and parcel to the Christian faith is sometimes we have people around us from our old lives that don't get it. So this idea of faith becomes important. At the end of chapter 10, if you just look back a page, verse 22 is about drawing near. I think we do that individually and we do it corporately. Verse 23, holding fast, is to just cling to what God's given us, cling to those promises. We do it corporately, we do it individually. And considering one another, verse 24, I think we do that individually by saying, I'm going to consider others, but we also experience it corporately. And then you have this idea in verse 25 of exhorting one another. You can only exhort in a relationship with other people. 
So you really can't do these four elements of the Christian faith outside of the body of Christ, which is where chapter 10 kind of concluded. So you either pull back from those things or you lean into those things. And it's a choice that everybody makes after they've decided to follow Jesus. So these aren't questions of salvation. And I think sometimes people can elevate Hebrews to that discussion. But the writers of Hebrews are assuming they're talking to readers that know the gospel and have accepted the gospel. So this is kind of an in-church discussion. Hebrews as a book is like a family meeting. And they're talking about what we believe and how, how we believe it. Um, and in the gathering of the body of Christ, we partake in the body of Christ. Christ said, this is my body broken for you. He asked us to worship in, in spirit and in truth. He asked us to love one another. Uh, he asked us to do these things so that the world would see and even be jealous of the joy that's inside the body of Christ. And he became that. So we verses 26 through 31, falling back can be to perdition or even judgment. Verses 32 to 39 is the leaning in. Uh, whether you get persecution or prison sentences, we lean into the faith. And the idea is that you have this kind of choice even after salvation to either go all in with Christianity or to pull back a little bit to make the people around you happy. It's a really tough, sensitive discussion. Verse 38, we live by faith, we don't draw back. So we believe that we live that way, verse 39, and we get this full chapter of faith or drawing near from verse 22 of the last chapter. So the idea of chapter 11 is we're going to live by faith. So uh, we really do ourselves justice if we slow down on this chapter and really understand what this is all about. Our faith gets stronger because we know what it is. And so you can say, I have strong faith, but if you doesn't know, don't know a biblical definition of faith, you may have just a strong flesh or a strong imagination. Um, so it says, now faith is. The word now there is in the present persistent tense. This is interesting because we're going to see a lot of tense work being done here. No pun intended. The new covenant is then a new kind of faith, and now faith is something different. In other words, the nature of faith has shifted from the old covenant. Faith was God said to do these things, so we do them on faith because God said so. And that is being built on just like epi-synagogue is built on top of synagogue from the last chapter. So now faith is, and the word there is in the present persistence, the word now is d or day in the Greek, and it's sitting there to let us know that we have a shifted idea, so tune in to what faith is going to now be defined as. It is the substance um, Hupostastis, and I'll come back to that word a little bit. I think I'm pronouncing it right, or at least with an accent, Minnesota accent. It's a compound word. The first part of the word is to be under or static or firm. So it's the same word that you would use throughout the Bible for understanding. So there's something underneath that's firm or standing or in a place. And the sentence is then placing faith underneath or the supporting word is hope in the first sentence. Faith is the foundation that sits under our hope. So being that it is substantial, there's an emphasis not just on the use of the word hypostasis, but they're putting on there that it is the substance. Faith is the substance. They're adding a secondary concept, which is repetition. So it's like saying a firm foundation. Foundations are always supposed to be firm, but a firm foundation adds that double meaning to it. So when you see... Faith is the substance of things hoped for. You're seeing kind of a double meaning there. There's an understanding that is firm, a firm belief or a firm reason, hypostasis. This is where the Christians get the term firm foundation. Uh, it's 
a firm foundation rather than a sandy foundation. So I think the writers are building off Jesus' parable of the house that's built on the rock versus the house that's built on the stand, or at least they're using words like that. Um, and even in the, the idea of concrete, look at, jump down and look at verse 10, and you'll see where this idea or this theme gets re repeated throughout the chapter. Earlier in Hebrews, the same word, hypostasis, was used for those people that are partaking in the body of Christ. So Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, for we've become partakers in Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. The word confidence there is hypostasis. So you could sub that in with our sentence. Now faith is the confidence of things hoped for. So it's kind of neat how this works. That substance, that firm foundation, that confidence is this rock. A lot different than an empty gap for Kierkegaard where there's a leap to be taken. It's very different. It's not a leap. It's something you stand on because you know it will hold you. So how does that happen? So first of all, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The words of and things are simply not in the Greek. You can cross those out. I don't know why they got added because listen to it without them. Now faith is the substance hoped for. See how that changes the meaning of the sentence completely? Faith is the substance hoped for. Faith is the rock we want in life. How do I know if I'm going to go to heaven? Well, I can't make up that answer. I want an answer that's solid. I want a rock before I'm going to act. I need to know something. So hoped for there is one word, elpidzo, to hope or place your trust in something. If faith is the hypostasis that I put my faith or trust in, I don't want that thing to ever break or fall or falter when I put my weight on it, ever. If I'm going to build my house, I don't want my foundation shifting or moving at all. I want it concrete. I want it firm. So things hoped for, you could fly through that verse and it just sounds like, think like I could hope for unicorns too. I could, I could hope that the, the landscaping in my backyard is done tomorrow magically by a work of God. That devil's garden would be weeded when I come home someday. I can hope for a lot of things, but hope in, the, in our culture seems to be kind of fluffy. It's something you just like wisp for or you wistfully hope for it. Faith then doesn't require a leap. It requires an understanding of what the foundation is that sits under our faith. This gives us the strength to resist people that are doubting or challenging our foundation because we can jump up and down and show them how firm it is. Look, it's, it holds me up. And if we can't do that, we are, we're, we're given to any wind of doctrine that blows through the church ever. And then we don't know when to move or when to, to stay our ground. Faith is the concrete setting for our hope, and hope establishes itself on top of it. Faith is the foundation. Hope is the house that we're going to build in order to have love inside the family which lives in that house. Like the metaphor carries itself through. Then you have the evidence of things not seen. Again, the use of the word evidence is not fluffy. It doesn't move around. It's not wistful. It's not a gap you jump over. It is a evidence of something. Evidence here is used, it's the same word that get, gets used in a courtroom. It's a proof of something, the kind of proof you bring to a court. So if I have evidence and I tell people about it, that is my witness. That's where these words come from. They're courtroom words. So I should never say something that's not true, but if I have a conviction or something I'm going to witness to, I need to have a foundation that I can point people at. I need to have the evidence of it. So... This is one of those things like what I remember 
I had a coach that told me a story about this. Middle of the desert, there's a well sitting in the middle of the desert. Have you guys heard this story? Guy walks up, days of in the desert, about half dead, skin peeling off his face, sunburned, bleached out all his hair, right? And he's just miserable. And he sees this water pump in the middle of nowhere. And he gets himself over to it, collapses. He lands on the ground, and next to his face is a jar of water, enough to drink a little bit. The, the water looks clear when he looks in the jar, but on the side of the jar is a little message that says, prime the pump, it works, it really does. And so the person has a decision to make. Do I drink this water that I so desperately need, or do I pour everything I got into this pump? If you don't know about old pumps, if you try to pump a dry pump, nothing happens. you got to get something in the pipe to get the suction power going. It's like if you try to drain a fish tank, you put a hose in it, suck the water, and then you have to have the, the hose in the other end of the water for any sort of suction to happen. It's priming the pump. So you put a little water in the pump to get something in the pipes, and then you move it, and the suction works, and it pulls the water up out of the well. And he debates about it. Finally, he decides, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to do it. At this point, it's a risk. It's not faith. He's got faith maybe in the little sign, but it's not the kind of faith that we're reading about here. So he puts it in the pump, and he starts going, and it cranks, and it cranks, and all of a sudden, a gusher of water comes. Like he's turning the sand to mud everywhere around it. It's splashing it off. The water clears off a little concrete platform that he's on, and he's just, he bathes in it. It feels good on his skin. It's overflowing. He dumps the jar out, fills it back up, takes as much water as he wants, sits for an hour, pumps it some more, and is just laughing. Like, this is exactly what he needed in life, in the middle of the desert. Fills the jar back up, finds that when the water cleared off the platform, there's an old Sharpie marker, and we're going to say it still works takes the Sharpie marker and he puts on the bottom of the thing. It works. It really does. And then he puts on there, I agree. And he leaves the jar for the next person to come along. That's our faith. If you don't experience the Holy Spirit, you have nothing to witness to. If you don't experience God working in your life and in the lives of others, you have nothing to talk about. You have nothing to share. So if faith is the hypostasis it's the substance of the things we hope for and the evidence of things not seen. It is to say that where our eyes can easily prove a physical world, my eyes and my fingers can prove the physical world, our faith is the proof of the spiritual world, is that we see things and experiencing things in our faith that are the evidence of the things that other people can't see and that we can't see alone. We've seen things happen. We've watched people change. We've watched hearts change that are really incapable of change. So that's a question for us as we go into this chapter is, can we say that our faith works? Are we at that point? And we're not all at that point. I just want to say that. Wherever you're at in your faith journey, some of you are still figuring out the concrete platform. Some of you are still looking at the jar, deciding if you want to pour it all in or not. But when you see people just coming, walking out of the desert, and they're drenched with moisture... And they say, oh, there's a pump back there. It works. It does. I, I agree. You believe them because you see it. There's evidence there. Well, how did this person get wet in the middle of the desert? How does this person have joy in the middle of COVID? How does this person have just peace in the middle of global chaos? And how does this person, are they naive? Are they stupid? Are they simple? Or when, they, when the, they saw the Christians in the courtyard with Peter on the day of Pentecost, they said, are these people drunk? And Peter's like, we're not drunk. 
It's the middle of the day. We haven't even started with that. We're just full of the Holy Spirit. This is the substance of the things we all hope for. I have something in my life that everybody wants. It's the substance of it. And then it says things not seen. There is an invisible world. There are, frankly, I think it's foolish to think that there's nothing beyond the range of spectrum that our eyeballs can handle when we're well aware that there's ultraviolet blue on one side and there's infrared on the other side. We know there's colors we can't see with our eyeballs. So when science has shown us that, why would we begin to think there's not existence beyond what we experience? That's foolish. There's substance to this. There's 10 chapters building on this old covenant, which was an image or a shadow of the things to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. We don't have to guess or look at shadows anymore. There's substance. So faith is no longer is then hoping for shadows. It's now concrete. We've seen the proof of it in Jesus Christ. It's happened. This is why the, the enemy loves to question Jesus Christ's resurrection on virtually no historical grounds. The only thing they have to say is, well, people don't rise from the dead. And we agree with them. No, people don't. There is a spiritual world where God can raise people from the dead, and he's going to raise me too. But that's not, on, that's not a leap of faith that I've taken. I have the evidence that Jesus was rose from the dead. And I'm going to trust that God's capable of doing it. So that's what this chapter is going to walk through. It's going to build that foundation point by point. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. As an example, we're going to look back and do an entire Old Testament Bible study. So chapter 11 of Hebrews is a full-on thematic study of the Bible. We're going to go through the whole thing. And we're going to see that it's always been this way. Faith is never acted out in shadows. We never have to trust somebody who got golden tablets in a secret room. We never have to trust the divine revelation of somebody in the Middle East that says my armies should rule the world. We never have to trust some sage on a hill in the middle of Tibet that they got some message. Faith has always historically been a global substantiation of what God's doing on the earth. That the people alive when God moves know that God moved. There's substance there. So the readers are being tempted to go back to Judaism after they have evidence of what God has done in their generation. And that's the point of Hebrews. Don't stop just because you think you should. So Christians today, likewise, we believe in Jesus, but we want to go back to our old ways of doing things. Well, if you believe in Jesus, then live accordingly and change it. Or you simply don't have faith. See how that changes the, the meaning a little bit? You're not standing on the foundation God's given you despite what the world says and what it looks like. So let's go back. Verse 2, for by it the elders obtained good testimony. That's the intro to the chapter. They're going to review all these things. What if all of our Old Testament heroes are actually examples of good people that were willing to change when God said to? Well, that's an interesting take on the Old Testament, isn't it? That what defines these people is they're willing to change their lifestyle because God said or did something. So if they weren't perfect people, like as we go through this is called the Hall of Champions or the Hall of Faith, right? This is the, the heroes of our faith. None of these people were perfect. And in this like account of the Old Testament, they just leave out all the sins. So any reader of this that knows the Old Testament know all of these people were screw-ups. They all had doubts. They all had sin. And that's not what they're talking about when they're talking about faith. 
at the end of the day, they lived according to what God said or did, and they made life changes because of it. That's what faith is. It's not a feeling. It's a choice that's made that is the substantial choice that you move forward because you have hope that God's going to keep his word. So we see the godly are always willing to do new things. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We're starting with Genesis 1. The worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen are not made of the things which are visible. In other words, the faith here in verse 3, I just love, by faith we understand. The word understand there in the Hebrew is a, a logical Greek word. Greeks loved logos. They loved how reason and, and thinking worked. To understand there is to perceive, think, heed, to consider, or literally to exercise your mind. You exercise muscle, muscles by putting a weight on them and moving your arm. And you exercise your muscles. You exercise your faith by going through what we're about to go through. And this is just a, a weight training session for your faith. It's not the abandonment of reason, but when it says by faith we understand, it's actually the exercise of reason. And this is what blows me away in the modern world. Coming out of academia, the absolute inability of grown adults with a PhD next to their name to use common sense thinking and logic and reason to come to their conclusions. It's gone. It's been deconstructed. And that idea of, no, 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 I'd like to use my brain here. I have questions. And I don't want to let go of my thinking. Don't ask me to make a leap of reason to come to your conclusions. Let's stick to what it says. And if I'm going to put my trust in something, it's not going to be a human being. It's going to be the established word of God proven through the centuries. Again and again and again. I'll put my faith in that over you. But I have a doctorate. I don't care. The Bible has a doctorate in whatever you want to give it. it just You should give an honorary doctorate. It's held up longer than any institution, including that university that granted the degree that's just a human title. So at the very beginning, Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. God spoke. That's the word they're talking about. We weren't there to see it. This is a powerful statement. We get a lot of people that argue and debate over creation and evolution. At the end of the day, nobody was there to see it. Everybody's trusting in something when it comes to what happened. And so we all look at data, but people interpret it dif differently. So all evidence of intelligence design is completely obvious. You have to be regressive in your thinking to come to a, 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 a kind of another kind of concept. We have Christians that debate over the length of creation. How many days? How long? It, was it bazillions of years or was it a simple day? That's a huge debate. But at the end of the day, God did it and he told us how he did it. So we have to take it on God's word that he did it the way he said. Because there is no first person evidence. So that evidence that we see of creation is that we have various concepts that we have to go back and look at. This is what I would call regressive thinking or reason. We see that the world around us is largely orderly. It is not chaotic. So how do you get order out of chaos? It doesn't happen anywhere in existence. So reason would say it didn't happen at the beginning either. That order made order. Life begets life, a common scientific precept. How do you get life from non-life? Basic question. We have no evidence that that's ever happened despite Frankenstein trying. It just never happens. So why would we think it happens at the beginning? We have no evidence of that. Here's another one. Independent complexities. Interdependent complexities. We have elements of our body that can't mutate because they don't exist without another part of our body. 
How do you get neural networks to an eyeball before an eyeball is invented? Or how do you get an eyeball before you have neural networks that makes it valuable? You can't progressively build that over time. You can't go from a worm to a bird. But a bird can go to the, anyways. <laughs> Other than through digestion, you can't go from worm to a bird. Interdependent complexities. Symbiosis. We have life forms that exist in reliance on other life forms. So how do you understand when there's no evidence that there would have been some, you'd have to have independent mutations in two different life forms that create necessary conditions for life amongst the other life forms. The evidence says those life forms were created at the same time because there's no place in the natural world that has any other situation that exists. There had to be intelligent design because we see evidence that you can't have it the other way. That's called using your head. And it's reason, and it's reasonable. A naturalist disregards everything they can't see, but they accept certain things at the same time. It's completely counter-reasonable. For instance, they accept that there's a thing called wind, but they can't see wind, even though it, it dictates our weather. They accept things like magnetism, yet they can't see magnetism. Did you ask them when you are flying kites? No? I can't prove and I can't have you show me any substance behind a concept called feelings. You say you have a feeling, but you can't prove it to me. You, I just have to take your word on it. Most people obviously accept there's things that we can't see, yet they can't accept there might be a God that we can't see. That's irrational, right? Tom, you're loving this, aren't you? It's all apologetics. Even something called identity is a made-up social construct. Now, you can deconstruct that, but identity is not just intrinsic. It's also social. So here's a thing we can't see and we can't prove, which is what gender you are. Keep your clothes on. I don't need real proof. But we have a construct there that we've made up, and everyone accepts that there's a thing called identity. The argument over it is whether or not God assigns identity or humans assign identity. Evidence would lean to the fact that you're born with an identity. So why would I change my mind on that just because it's a popular theory that humans have? Why would I bend on those things? Why would I start to lie when the Bible says not to lie and start to construct these things? Reasonable people reject this. But we have a culture of people that refuse to reject unreasonable things because it's all subjective. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. Something made this world that we can't see. And we understand that. It's a common thing. The first thing that got made was light, and before light nothing was visible. So it was the first acts of creation were done without eyeballs to look at it. We all accept this. At least the writers write that we do. We know God did it because God said to do it. We just don't know how exactly other than the word that he's given us. So we trust in his word. And we can settle on that for a reason. Verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Again, this, these are courtroom terms. God testifying of his gifts. Witness, testify, obtained. And through it, he's, he being dead still speaks. 
All right, so God's acceptance is set in stone that he accepted Cain over Abel, or Abel over Cain's sacrifices. So we have a witness in history of what a right sacrifice looks like. We know what a good sacrifice is because Abel showed us and God confirmed it. And we still have this model even though Abel is dead, right? He's a dead guy, but we have a witness that comes from this dead guy because we have a record of it. Abel being dead is then not rewarded with life in this lifetime. That's another concept. His witness exists even though he died. So the action is confirmed by God, and we then continue in faith as substance of the things hoped for. We now have an, an, an instance in history where we know that God accepts some sacrifices but not others. Who defines what a good sacrifice is? God defines what a good sacrifice is. We take that on faith because we have a historical piece of evidence that shows us that we should take that on faith because God reacted. Notice the construction here. The first one is sacrifice. We know how God gets pleased. We know God defines what's pleasing. Then verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. There's quotes there because we're referencing Genesis 5.24. For before he was taken he had his t this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I love the commentary here. We have evidence that God rewards people. We know that God has preferences on the sacrifices that he gets. We know that God rewards people like he rewarded Enoch. Enoch didn't have to die. That's a curse that all humanity gets. Enoch didn't have to die. That's huge. So we know that even though we're all cursed with death, and there's a good chance we're all going to die, we know that God can take that curse away as easily as he gave it. It's not a permanent situation that if we give sacrifices that honor our God, we don't have to die. And I don't have to take that on faith because I got evidence that it's happened. He showed preference with Abel. He shows that people don't have to die with Enoch. You see how they're building an argument here? Abel is the, that there are sacrifices. Enoch is that there, are, there is salvation. And in fact, the capture or the taken away in the Latin is the word raptura or rapture, that he can rapture people and he can take them away just like that. Poof. That's not a wispy hope because it has happened before in history. We have a written account of it. We have a witness of Enoch. We have a witness of Abel. And we can go into a courtroom and know that those witnesses are there for us to understand things too. Faith is the substance. Verse 7, here's more substance. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of the things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. God said, Noah, do something. Noah did it. And he didn't do it in a wispy hope. He did it in the great assurance that he would be saved because Enoch got saved. God knows how to save. So if he knows how to save, then obeying God is a good thing to do. So we're building up our faith on these blocks, these foundational blocks. Noah, by the way, built the ark even though rain had never happened before. He did what he did because he trusted in God, not because he was convinced through a logical argument. He knew God would keep his word, and if God says he's going to judge the earth... It's time to build an ark. Genesis 6.22, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did it. 
God said, do it. He does it. And he didn't do it just because he was the first person to ever encounter God. He did it because he had ancestors that encountered God and he was going to listen to that God. So the judgment was coming. He responds, which is an act of obedience. And then it says he's an heir. Uh, he became heir of the righteousness, which is according to the faith. And Lot screwed up some stuff too, but he became heir of this. When we hear God, we should obey he did it to save his household, by which he, con he was condemned by the world. It's interesting that Noah did this thing, but his whole household gets saved too. In other words, one person can act in such a way that it saves the people around them. This is interesting, because it builds. Abel showed us sacrifice. Enoch shows us salvation. Noah shows us judgment. You seeing how this paints a picture? We have no excuses. It is possible to obey God, even though the entire world is against you. No excuses. Noah. He ruined it. We would have had lots of excuses if it wasn't for Noah. So all these things have been witnessed. They're set in stone. They're a foundational building block. Then you get to Abraham. And, and Abraham, remember there's lots of Abraham in the Old Testament, like chapter after chapter. There's tons of Abraham stories in the Old Testament. Look at what they focus in on. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he is going. He'd never seen it before. Things he can't see. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. That's the second use of the word heirs. Are you seeing how they, like we inherit these promises? And it goes forward through history. For he waited for the city which was a, has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We're back to this construction metaphor that's there. So Abraham isn't acting in a vacuum. He knows his heritage, Abel, Enoch, Noah. So when God shows up and says, I need you to move, Abraham, and I want you to do something different, Abraham just does something different and it, because he knows the history. of This is all a building block that stacks up. The builder and maker is God of this thing. So we don't have to guess it or hope for it or take a leap for it. We just see what God's constructed through history. This is why the Old Testament is so darn important that we know it. It's, Abraham's not perfect, for he goes halfway, and then he takes Lot with them. Like, he does two things wrong in this going, but just say he obeyed because when he was called to go out of the place he would receive, he went out. It doesn't tell us any of the stuff where he messed it up in two different ways. It's just at the end of the day, he just did what he was told. I think this is really important for Christians because it is not important for me to tell you how to follow your king. It's important for me to accurately present the word of God. So it's not, Lord, please speak through Sean. It's like, Lord, please speak despite Sean. And let me just hear the script. Let me focus and meditate on the word. And if he can be a blessing in helping that, great. To not know where you're going is this assurance that we don't need direction. The direction we have is to obey God. We don't have to know what to do on our own. We have to follow what God has for us. Verse 9, by faith he dwelt. So he goes and then he dwells. So he moves when he's supposed to move. He stops when he's supposed to stop. The word there, by faith he dwelt, the word dwelling there is interesting. It actually means alien, or he was a resident alien in another country. So like Noah, the whole world around him didn't know the God. So he spends time as an alien in a, in a strange place, a foreigner in a foreign land. And he doesn't have a home there yet. So aliens have accents. They talk different. They look different. They dress different. They live different, and we too aren't home yet, according to the New Testament. We haven't arrived yet. We should look different. We should dress different. We should talk different. We're Christians. We have a new hope. 
And, and, and Abraham had every reason to believe that God is faithful because of his ancestors. So he was willing to live in a tent and be nomadic. He knew that God accepts gifts. He knew that God saves from death. He knew that God knew how to judge. So God asked him to give up security, and then God followed the steps in doing it. That's what we call a sacrifice, which God found acceptable because he comes to Abraham and makes a promise. They mention Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with them. This is the very patriarchs of Judaism. You can see where this would land on a Jewish audience. Look, every one of your heroes knew how to do what we Christians are doing right now. This, ours is the tradition of Judaism. We're not eliminating Judaism. We're taking the next step of Judaism, which has foundations. Hoping for a city doesn't mean that there wasn't a there there. This is like an interesting thing. Just because I have to go to a land I've never seen before doesn't mean the land doesn't exist. That's not a leap of faith. It's me expanding my limited horizons. That's faith, is to do these things. So the present tense, which has foundations, and its maker is God, Hypostasis. There's a firm foundation here. Substance, undergirded, understanding. It's all the same word. And the maker is God. If we doubt our duty to react when God witnesses, we disregard Abraham entirely and we ignore the faith of Abraham. So when God's building, we should be waiting, we should be obeying, we should be moving. Verse 11. Ready? By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. She bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many of the stars of the sky in the multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. As good as dead. Apparently, when we get old, we're as good as dead. And that's the writer of Hebrews. Well, Abraham, he was as good as dead, meaning that he wasn't able to produce babies anymore. Sarah was given strength. It wasn't a spiritual strength. Literally, it's the strength to make a baby. Um, so, and, and it was because she was past the age, verse 11. So the idea that she was given the strength to endure, even though she was older, the older you get in childbirth, the more likely you're going to have troubles with that childbirth. And it can even to the point of being deadly. So Sarah's able to, well into her old age, have a baby. This is amazing. So that's a miracle that happens. It's an amazing miracle. But Sarah is brought in, and it's interesting to think that people have to have faith to be faithful. But that's not the case. If you look at Genesis 18, 12, Sarah laughed at God when he said she was going to have a baby. Remember that? In fact... She laughed at herself in Genesis 21.6 when she had the baby. Her faith was there after God had acted, not before. It's really interesting that we're using this as a foundational piece. Abraham screwed it up before he did it right. And Christians, we beat ourselves up all the time because we accept Jesus as our Savior, and then we screw up and we think that's not part of the process. It's totally part of the process. We screw up. We Like our heroes, we don't get it right the first time or even the second time, right? Sarah's caught laughing at God, and he, like I, he calls her out on it too. I don't want to go back through the whole story, but the Lord visited Sarah as he said, Genesis 21.1, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. The point is when God says it, God does it. He's faithful. So the faith of Sarah is really that she accepted that God was telling the truth. God was the one that was shown faithful before Sarah had faith. 
That's an interesting order of things. Oftentimes when we evangelize or we're talking to people, we're saying you've got to have faith before they have any substance to base it on. That's an interesting twist, isn't it? When it's not the construct of Hebrews. Sarah knew that she couldn't bear children. It was rational for her to laugh at God. And she, she even gave Hagar to Abraham. Like she knew she was done with baby making. But that was Sarai. Sarah got her name changed in Genesis 17, 15. She got a new name. She got a new life. Literally and figuratively. We know then God can give us a new name. God can give us new life. When he says, I'll give you new life, he's done it before. We can have faith because it's already happened before. Nothing is too marvelous for our God. That always makes me think of Catherine. And that was Sarah's thought. What, what more can God do? And God's like, oh, just you wait. Give me 2,000 more years. You haven't even seen the beginning of it. That's just a single kid. I'm going to give new life to millions. I'm going to flood the earth with new people that have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. Watch me. And God invites us to do that. God said it, and then he did it, and then Sarah has faith. We are simply witnesses of a growing testimony of faith throughout the history of the world. That's it. God approves sacrifices. God can grant salvation. God can pass judgment. He has the patriarchs wait three generations for promises to be filled. Sarah can give life impossibly having a baby when she shouldn't be able to have a baby, like a virgin who can't make a baby because she hasn't had sex. But God can do that. I'm not saying Sarah was a virgin. I'm saying he can make the impossible happen when it comes to childbirth. We can have faith in that because it's happened. How do we know it's happened? <laughs> Look at the end of verse 12. There's so many Jews on the earth that it's innumerable like the sand which is on the seashore. Look around. You're looking at Jews because Abraham and Sarah had a baby. We have evidence that a person can have a baby that shouldn't be able to have a baby. We can have faith in those things because God has done them past tense. He is doing them present tense, and he will do them future tense, all the same for God. should be all the same for us. God has, he is, and he will. He's the same forevermore. Sacrifice, salvation, judgment, waiting on things. Abraham, new life. Sarah, millions of people can base their faith on those foundational things. But there's more. Verse 13. These people all died in faith, not having received the promises. What, there's more to these promises. But having seen them from afar off, they were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. We are looking for heaven. Abraham was looking for the promised land, physically. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Okay, theologically, it's hard to read those passages and think that the promised land was only Israel. Because in Hebrews, they translate that and change it for us. Get replacement theology out of your head. It's absolute nonsense. It's not biblical. Israel as is a country is an image or a shadow of the heavenly country that we should all be going after forever. 
And if you are a replacement theologian, we'll talk over lunch if you want to. But this particular passage makes that transition for Christians. We're not looking just for the land of Israel. The Jews are a special people, yes. They always will be because we see them in Revelation as a major player in that. But we are all supposed to be looking for a different country to live in. Not on a wistful hope, but on the foundation of these things. They embraced them. That connotates more than an intellectual choice. Not only did they see God work, but they embraced, which shows adoration and affection. At some point, God's people fall in love with God. Because you're like, what kind of God would do this for us? So there's strangers and pilgrims, generations of Hebrews living in a culture that was apart from them. Christians, if you're going through the worst trials of your life, keep going. Move on. Set the joy before you because God will get you to that other place. And that happens. There's a desire for better. Well, that's wonderful. I call that hope. A desire for better things. And they had this hope because they had evidence to base it on. I know I'm beating that point, but that's what the chapter does. At each step, God shifts the focus. And because God's building towards Messiah, but he's building incremental foundation blocks that point us to, to Messiah as we go through the New Testament. So these requests of these faith confirmations, God asks his people to do something, they do it, and he affirms it, and in each one of those things, he's building towards something. Therefore, God is not ashamed. Those that believe, those that remember and live accordingly, we focus on if we're ashamed of God to do something or not do something. That's not the most important question. The most important question is, is God ashamed of us? Or at the end of the day, do we love him with our heart? And we're trying to work towards him. We should consider that too. So these promises, when believed, are what we call faith. We share this faith with our kids. Abraham shares it with Isaac. Isaac shares it with Jacob. There's a generational passing on of faith. Here's what's happened. Believe it. Move forward in that faith. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had received the promises offered up to his only begotten son. Offered up there is in the past tense. Abraham had made a decision, and when he was going up that hill, he was ready to sacrifice his kid. And Hebrews tells us that it wasn't done physically, but it was done spiritually. He had spiritually let go of his kid. Also note here the clear use of the phrase, only begotten son. <laughs> it's an allusion to Jesus if you miss that, right? It's connecting that story to what God did with Jesus. The only other author in the Bible, going back to my committee theory on Hebrews, the only other author in the Bible to use the phrase only begotten son is John. Can't find it anywhere else. He uses it four times in his gospel. He uses it once in his epistles. So it's, it's definitely a John phrase that gets thrown in there. So people are either copying John or John had something to do with constructing the language here. Just a thought. Just throwing that out there for my wife. Verse 18. Of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Stop on that because this is the building, right? <laughs> this is really interesting. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. So if Abraham had already decided spiritually to give up his kid, then he had to have been concluding that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead because God also said that Isaac would be his seed and would, would be the place where the things happened. 
Why would Abraham believe that God's capable of raising people from the dead? Because he'd already done it with Enoch. Why did Abraham believe God took sacrifices? Because he already accepted the sacrifice of Abel. Why would he believe that it's good to follow God even in that kind of an act? Because he'd seen the judgment of God through Noah. Why in the world would he have concluded that giving up his son and trusting that God would raise Isaac from the dead would be a good thing to do? Because God gave him Isaac and he saw the miracle in his own wife. Abraham not only had the faith of his ancestors, he also had his own life experience to build off of. This is wonderful. This is the beauty of the Old Testament. God doesn't expect us mere humans to act or think without evidence. He wants us to seek out his word so that we know what he has done. It says here, concluding, verse 19, concluded that God, that implies thinking and reason. Abraham struggled with this. He wrestled, should I do this? Should I not do it? Should I go? Should I not go? Should I sacrifice? Should I not? But he made a conclusion. And the conclusion was based on the witness of the past and his own experience. And he made a decision. God's people know how to make decisions. So we teach this is true. God actually took up Enoch. There was actually a flood on this planet. right? We teach that there actually was an Abraham. He's not a mythological character. These are things that God's done throughout history so we can walk in faith. These are the very things that the world attacks when they look at the Bible and the Old Testament. They go right after the things that are our building blocks. Makes sense. If you want to take a building out, crack the foundation. See what happens next. Abraham believed that God could save because he'd already saved. We believe that God can save us because he's already saved. Period. History then becomes the enemy of the godless, but the truth of history becomes the collected witness of God's people throughout history. Verse 20, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons Joseph, sons, each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff, meaning he's old. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. This is interesting. I, what I get from 20 through 22 is that he's showing us how that faith keeps going through generations. Like these are decisions being made based on what has happened in the past, not necessarily what's happened to them personally. Even though Joseph has quite a story, right? Lots of reasons for faith. But the reason he wanted his bones to go back to the promised land is because God had made a promise to Abraham that that would be the land that the Israelites would be in. So he asked for that special request before he died because he had faith that God would keep that promise because he's kept every other promise. Joseph specifically wanted his bones buried in the promised land for that reason. Um, he knows it'll happen. This is where it happens. Genesis 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brethren, I die and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph knew the Israelites wouldn't stay in Egypt. How did he know that? He had evidence. God said so. That's the nature of it. That's the substance of hope and the evidence of things not seen. So Joseph hopes for this, even though he hasn't seen it happen yet. But it's an unwavering hope built on a foundation of everything Joseph did in this life that we could highlight, the fact that he had bones instructions is the thing that the writer of Hebrews wants to highlight for us. 
It's his bone instructions. That's the example. Not the dreams, not the miracles, none of that stuff. If God speaks true and God offers a reward, it's very logical to go after the reward that God offers us. Good dog. Timber, leave, leave her be. All right. Here's the theory. This has been proven, like, this is an interesting thing. In psychology, you have a thing called the marshmallow test. I think I've talked about this before. But you put little kids, like little four-year-olds, in front of a marshmallow, and you help them, like, go for the things hoped for and the things not seen. You say, that's a marshmallow, and you can eat that marshmallow if you want to. But if you can wait to eat the marshmallow, I'll come back in the room, and I will have two marshmallows for you. And it's a test to see if people can do delayed gratification. What God's done with his people is delayed gratification, nothing less than that. He said, you can go and do whatever you want to do with your life. But if you can wait and have some constraints around these blessings I've put in your life, I'm going to bless you like you can't even imagine. You just got to wait for me to come back. And the weird thing is with kids, like it's really predictive if a four or five-year-old can wait on the marshmallow. It's very predictive of their level of success and happiness later in life. Delayed gratification just works. But if they just grab the marshmallow and start eating or licking it or playing with it or whatever, the, the degree to which the kid can just tune it out and say, I don't think so. And that's what God's asked us to do with sin. Tune it out. Say, I don't think so. I'm not going to do that because I'm waiting for a better reward. That's not illogical. It's as logical as waiting for the second marshmallow. I'm pure self, like, like I'm doing this for me, right? I want the blessings of God. God can take and approve sacrifices. God can save human beings from death. God does and can pass judgment. We have global evidence of that. God makes his people wait. God can create new life where there wasn't life before. God asks for generational levels of trust from his believers. He may take a few human generations to fulfill his promises. See how he's building us up to Christianity on each of these pieces? So as a first century Jew saw persecution starting to come, the writer's reminding them that, hey, there's hardship all over in the Old Testament. God's people were slaves in Egypt for generations. It's all over. Don't think that when God asks us to do something different, we won't endure hardship. In fact, we will endure hardship. That's part of the game plan. Then in verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. <clears throat> I like on 26, they throw Christ in there, right? They're clearly comparing this to their Christian life. For he looked for the, for, to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Going back to things not seen in verse 1. So we get a summary of Moses' life, which was a witness God, of anybody. God worked in ways Moses could see with his own eyes. But that's not what they point out with Moses. They point out the fact that his parents hit him, and they had nothing to see with their eyes to do that. They did it on pure faith. Because they were hoping for things not seen, like God's salvation. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the Pharaoh's daughter. Like, he, he maintained his identity as a Hebrew because of the promises of God. He hadn't seen the part Red Sea part. He hadn't seen the plagues of Egypt. He hadn't seen anything when he made that decision. I'm going to be a Hebrew. 
I'm a Jewish person. He identified with the right group of people because God had made a promise. So in the first century, when they're talking to a group of Jews, going back to their old lifestyle, they're saying, look, as Jews, we should know how to switch gears when God says to based on his promise and the evidence we see before us, even if it means suffering affliction. Like Moses, look at this guy. He's a hero of the faith, not because he parted the Red Seas, simply because he identified as a Jewish person when he was supposed to. He could have easily gone to Egypt if he wanted to, but he didn't. Christians, we're in the same situation. We could identify as Jewish people, but we don't because God's asked us to identify with his people. So we do. Sacrifice, salvation, judgment, waiting, new life, generational pus. And with Moses, we get two more things. We accept earthly affliction over earthly wealth and ease. Like in this life, this isn't what we're living for. We'll live for what God's promised. And with Moses, we also get just this allegiance with God's people. When God says, move, we move. That's the lesson of Hebrew through the lens of, uh, that's the lesson of Moses through the lens of Hebrews. The world says, look at Pharaoh's armies. And the spirit and faith say, look at God's mighty hand. But they're both telling us to look at something. The world says, look at the snakes. God says, look to the cross. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Now we get the miracles in two verses. It's interesting that Moses saw God at work before it. Like if you study Moses, there's a progressive level of trust that God asks for. It starts with the burning bush right? Trust me, trust me. You know, they go before Pharaoh, they're throwing sticks on the ground that turn into snakes. That happened before the great plagues. So these things that God's asked Moses to do, the, God never expects faith beyond what people are capable of giving. He doesn't put you in situations you cannot handle. They were told by God that blood on the doorpost would save them. Why in the world they'd never seen before that blood on a doorpost would save people? Why would they possibly think that blood on a doorpost would do anything? Because God told them. Right? So this idea of doing these things that they're asked to do based on the foundation of what God's already done. Those who don't share Moses' faith in this situation, they lost their firstborn child because they didn't obey. How much more for us when we have the evidence of Jesus Christ if we don't obey? What are we going to suffer? What's coming? So the Red Sea parts, they had courage to leave Egypt and they acted, but they trusted that they could cross that sea. And in fact, here's the thing. The Egyptians had trust that they could cross the sea also. They had faith that they could get across that sea in time. They're watching the sea pile up and they're thinking, we can do this too. The Egyptians and the Jews had the exact same amount of courage to move forward but their faith was really different. Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices, but God's response to them was very different. God saved the Hebrews because of faith. He destroys the Egyptians because they don't have faith in what God has said. At the end of the day, that's why they drowned. Our, our reward is not reliant on our courage. It's not reliant on anything we do. It's reliant on how God responds to the things we've done in obedience to his word. 
the degree to which we praise God because he said to praise him. The degree to which we even understand what God's done and we trust that he's going to keep doing it. Verse 30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down as they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she'd received the spies with peace. So he got an example of people who risked their lives in, in this moment. Rahab didn't perish. She's put on the same level as Moses, right? She's in the same catalog of faith, even though she just didn't kill people when they came to her house. But she believed that God was with those people because she believed the Hebrews were being treated special by God. That's really interesting. Think of how little she did. She hung a cord outside her window. Moses like kept his hands up in the battle of the Amalekites. Right? The amount of things we do has nothing to do with the level that we're at. Like It doesn't matter how long the servant works in the field. What matters is that they work in the field. God treats people differently based on how he chooses to treat them. So he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath, Joshua 2.1. That's what came out of Rahab's mouth. She professed and confessed with her lips that the Lord God Almighty was the Lord God Almighty. That's it. I mean, putting her on the same level as Abraham and Moses? Like, that had to be shocking to the Jewish reader because Rahab's not that big a part of the Old Testament. But here she is, elevated. She was right there because she professed with her mouth. Is there any God but Yahweh? And the answer is no. Does anything reign above the God Almighty? No. That's the answer to those questions. God is a God of heaven and earth. She believes, she's a witness to it, puts her in the hall of faith. She opens her home in peace and hospitality. Honestly, that's it. That's all Rahab did is she was hospitable to God's people. She fed them. She gave them a place to sleep with clean sheets, I hope. Right? That's what she did. And yet in the church sometimes we think that being hospitable is not as important as being uh, Franklin Graham doing a, a crusade. Franklin Graham's at the same level as, as people who host and have people over, and especially God's people. We're supposed to bless houses when we go in and out of them. Remember that? You know, if they, if, they, if they aren't honoring God, we wipe the dust off of our feet and we don't even take the dust with us from that house. But if they are honoring God, we're supposed to leave a blessing when we come out of that house. Bless you. What more shall I say? Verse 32, let's get into the conclusion here. What more is there to say? Like this kind of, like if, you, if you're missing this, what more is there to say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah David and Samuel, the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned the flight of the armies of, of the aliens, and women received their dead raised to life again. I don't know if that last one's speaking about Lazarus. What more is there to say? Those little teeny acts of faith from the earlier parts of the Old Testament are building into kingdoms getting toppled. The simple act of drawing near, holding close, considering one another, those simple faithful obedience to those tasks, they turn into entire cultures changing. Like it's like dominoes getting bigger one after the other, right? A little domino can tip a slightly bigger domino and then the next slightly bigger domino, after 18 dominoes increasing by 1.5, you're tipping something the size of the Eiffel Tower. Like, that's faith. All we do is tip towards God every single time. 
they did these things through faith, through failures, through screw-ups. I mean, honestly, Gideon doesn't believe God at first. That's the whole story of Gideon, is it takes him a while to get there, Judges 6 and 7. Barak doesn't even do it on his own. He needs Deborah to encourage him, Judges 4. Samson, <laughs> what do you say about Samson? The guy's a total mess. He only does one thing right at the end. He believes God is God. Otherwise, he's just the total screw-up, Judges 16. Jephthah makes stupid vows and has his own daughter sent away, Judges 11. Really, this list is its almost like they're picking the sinners, but they're saved by grace because of their faith in the Lord's faithfulness, not their own. Their own faithfulness is not much to brag about. Who through faith, it doesn't say they had faith, it said who through faith, because of despite all of themselves, it gets done anyways. Despite all of my screw-ups, the word gets taught anyways. Despite all of your screw-ups, the gifts of the Spirit get used anyways because you honor God as your God. Sacrifice, salvation, judgment, waiting on things. God brings new life, generational trust, allegiance and obedience, countless examples of endurance, obedience and trust. That's the victory of God. Building up to Messiah. We don't have to, none of these concepts we have to just take in a fluffy hope. All of these concepts, we have written evidence of those things happening. All of the key works of the Bible are done irregardless of the traditions that went before them. All of the works of the Bible are done at God's command, and all of the works of the Bible are rewarded by God himself. And that pattern is witnessed again and again and again. Verse 32, what more shall I say? If you don't see that, you're not reading it. God's been tested over and over and over again and has always shown worthy of any faith we give to him. That is a rock we can build our life on. I don't know much, but I know God's in heaven and he's on his throne. And I'm going to do what he says because I don't really care what anybody else thinks. There's a backbone to the faith. There's not an abdication of reason. There is a use of reason to come to understand these ideas. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Verse 36, still others had a trial of mockings and scourging, yes, of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were tempted and they were slain with the sword. They were wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. You know what, first century Jews? You are too comfortable. You've gotten too cozy. God often makes his people struggle. Are you ready for struggle? Because if struggle makes you run back to synagogue, is God proud of that? Good, faithful Hebrews are ready for the worst. That's their history. They endure everything. That's what gives them. That's what gives God the glory. Is that these people just keep taking it and they keep surviving. And all of these, verse thirty-nine, having obtained a good testimony through faith, they did not receive the promise. What's the promise at this point? It's not the Holy Land. It's not the Temple. It's not the Tabernacle. It's God Himself. All of these people we just talked about did not get the promise. Everything they did was for the hope of something better based on what God had already done. Verse 40, God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. All of their faith was worthless if Messiah doesn't show up. 
And what made that faith perfect, that we know Abraham was on target, is that Jesus came, he died, and he rose again. It makes perfect everything in the Old Testament. It fulfills it all. Because what they were waiting for on faith, we've seen. God provided something better. Verse 40. God gives us a perfect sacrifice. He shows us a perfect salvation like Enoch. He, he shows us that he says judgment is coming like he did with Noah. He's going to keep that promise too, by the way. Generations are told to wait for his return. He's coming back again. We're one of those generations. We're waiting on him. And our primary duty is to teach the next generation to wait on him too. Don't give that up. Jesus is, was born to a virgin and just like uh, Isaac was born to an old lady that couldn't make babies anymore, God confirms that his promise with flesh and blood of impossible births that they can happen, fulfilled in Jesus Christ again. Those promises can take a long time. The patriarchs, the judges, the kings, they can take generations. In light of God's assembly, the epi-synagogue being over the old synagogues, God's telling his people to move just like he told Moses to move. God's giving them a new set of rules to obey and assemble, just like he gave Moses a new set of rules to obey and assemble around. The new covenant didn't dismiss Abraham or Noah or Moses. The new covenant said, we're building on top of Abraham and Moses and Noah and Enoch and Joshua and David. In light of walls falling, kingdoms falling, judges, kings, prophets, lions, verse 33, the lions are in there. God's been faithful for a millennia and God's people have endured for a millennia and hardship is nothing to us. Now, I just don't say that with a leap of faith. I say it in the substance of what we see in the word of God. I know God will save. They can take my life, but they can't take my soul. I know that's the case. All of the Old Testament, none of them got the big promise of Messiah, but they were all obedient in hope of the big promise. So here we got Jesus, virgin birth, sinless sacrifice, salvation sealed, judgment coming, waiting on God, generational faith, obedience, command to assemble, and God approves all of it by raising him from the dead. Boom, that's Messiah. God having provided something better for us, verse 40. How much better do we have looking back at Jesus than Moses had looking back at Enoch? We have so much of a better testimony. We have a better understanding or a firm foundation. We have the evidence of God's hand in resurrection, tearing the veil in the temple, the dead rising up and walking from the end of Matthew, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost shedding on the church, healings, miracles, most of all, the miracle in my own heart, I am different than I was 40 years ago. I'm a new man. God's been working in my life every year. I'm better than I was yesterday, today. And I can testify to that, my own experience. The word of God, those two things together, unshakable foundation. We are made perfect. In the Greek, that means completed, finished. God died on the cross. What were his last words? finished, done. That's like when a, 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 a master walks away from the canvas and says, it's done. They say good artists never totally walk away. But at some point, you got to walk away and say, it's finished. And here's the best part. We still have promises to come. Like Jesus, that part of it is fulfilled and done and finished, but God's saying he's going to come back. 
how much faith do we have in that? Did we need a leap of logic to trust that he's coming back? No, because we know he came the first time. We know that he promised the Jewish people after they were taken to Babylon, prophet after prophet said, you're going to leave Babylon. I'm pulling you out of there. And then they get pulled out of there. In a day, Cyrus changes his mind and says the Israelites can pack it up and go back to the Holy Land. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, God will change his mind and say, I'm taking my Christians home now. Just like he did with Enoch. Nothing God says he's going to do hasn't been done already at some level. It's just that he's going to do it bigger and better because it's what he said. We trust God not without substance. Our hope has a foundation. We do it with reason and understanding, and we've made an understanding, just like Abraham had with it. We've become convinced that we're right because God has been right. And nothing else has changed. Now, I'm going to go back to verse 1. Let's go back to, we're going to end on verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Taking out the things. Now, faith is the substance hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now we don't have to question certain things. So much has been fulfilled with Jesus. It's in the present tense. He's not talking about history in verse 1. He's talking about right now. Right now we have every reason. Faith is the understanding of the Old Testament, and Jesus is the evidence of all these things that we haven't seen yet. Jesus rising from the dead substantiates all of the claims of God and all of the hope of the Old Testament heroes that we have. Who are we to walk away from that? Who is anyone? You imagine the judgment seat? There's people going, well, I didn't really want to think about it. Really? You just lived in the now your whole life? Ignored all history before you like it doesn't matter? How arrogant. How pompous. The Holy Spirit at work amongst God's people is the evidence that should be seen. It should be a city on a hill that everybody in this world can see. And if we're not bright enough, we should start praying. Draw near, hold, hold fast, consider one another. If the light of the church is dimming, it's because we're not doing those things on faith because that's how God works. So faithfully, we believe God's worthy of our trust Amen. I don't know about you, this just puts total joy in my heart. When I sit and meditate on the foundational blocks of what I'm supposed to believe, I'm just overflowing. I want to tell the world. It, when you hear the critiques of these little, little people saying, well, I'm not sure Noah is real. Who are you to say that? Like, honestly, it ju it's just not even compares to the just the repeated faithfulness of God through all of human history. And then we have little humans today thinking, ah, I don't believe it. Good luck with that strategy because you got a soul and your soul is eternal. I know my body's going to break down, but I know God makes new life and he can do it instantly. He can take an old body and make it make a baby. He can take my old knees and make them sing and run in the fields again. He can even take Mike and let him wrestle one more time right? That's what God does. He renews. He creates things anew. He brings new life in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, fill our hearts. Lord, help us to disregard the lie that the world has given that to believe in you and to believe in your faithfulness requires for us to, ab to abstain from reason and understanding. What a falsehood. 
Lord, help our faith to be absolutely a firm foundation that when we walk forth, we don't do it in pride and arrogance, Lord, but we do it with you underneath us. So when we do the things you've commanded, we do it with an absolute certainty that you will work through those things as you please. Lord, when we exercise our, our gifts in the church, we do those things without, we're not questioning that you have power. We're just questioning our own ability to obey you. So Lord, help us to move forward with the substance of hope in our own lives. Lord, I pray for each person in this room that they experience your love and your grace and your peace, not through feelings, Lord, but through consideration and memory and reason and faith in facts of things they cannot deny of evidence of the things they can't see. Lord, help their hearts to be moved and know that you're moving them. Lord, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear all that you've done amongst your saints, all that you're doing amongst your saints, and all that you will do in each of the people, um, Lord, that study your word and draw near and hold fast and consider one another. Lord, help us to be faithful as you are faithful. Help us to be holy because you're holy. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.